This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Dr. Ty Mansfield is a licensed marriage and family therapist and holds a doctorate of philosophy in marriage and family therapy and has advanced training in sex therapy, among many other credentials. He has worked for almost 10 years in various capacities with individuals and couples who have struggled with myriad issues such as marital distress and infidelity, sexual and religious identity conflicts, addiction, various issues related to healthy sexuality and sexual relationships, and more. Ty is an author and sought-after speaker. Ty lives with his wife, Danielle, and five children in Spanish Fork, Utah. So welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm Tara McCausland, and thank you. Ty, for coming back on the podcast. I so appreciate it. Yes, happy to be here. So today we will be discussing everybody's favorite topic, love and marriage, but also maybe something that might feel a little less comfortable, um, how to nurture sexual intimacy in the marital relationship. I recognize this, again, might make some uncomfortable, but Ty is uniquely qualified on a number of fronts to, to talk to this subject. So Without further ado, let's jump into this. So um, in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, we read, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. And the Lord, that's a scripture we often quote in church. Men and women are mm-hmm. unique in a variety of ways. And often I feel like those differences come into conflict in marriage. And you know, sometimes we describe marriage as the old ball and chain. And I think a lot of people are losing their faith in marriage as an institution and more and more people are choosing to remain single or choosing alternatives to traditional marriage. So what are some of the misconceptions we have inherited from our culture about romantic love and marriage? Uh, This is a really good question. And I think we probably have to zoom out a bit, right? To even, you know, to, as we talk about marriage, we have to ask ourselves, you know, theologically, what is marriage, um, right? Because as you're sharing this scripture, there's some very important spiritual assumptions that um, are important, particularly given that cultural narratives of marriage are so powerful. And sometimes it's hard to even differentiate what is doctrinal and what is cultural. Mm. And um, theologically, uh, I think we're quite unique, right? I mean, a lot of Christian traditions or other, and not even just Christian, other traditions have a, have a concept of marriage as a religious, right? Or, you know, sort of spiritual narratives of marriage. Marriage is a covenant institution. But within our, our faith, you know, we have this understanding of marriage as an order of priesthood, mm-hmm. right? And I think we, in the 20th and 21st centuries, are more inclined to think of marriage in Victorian romantic terms than we are in in spiritual terms, right? Or covenant terms, um, religiously at all, to say nothing of this idea of it being an order of priesthood, right? That kind of strips some of the romanticism out of it, right? I think, and I think, you know, 
uh, Kathleen Flake, who's a, a prominent LDS scholar, she's the she holds the chair of Mormon studies at University of Virginia. She wrote a piece, um, kind of. She was looking uh, at actually like at plural marriage, and and this isn't you know, you know, making a case for plural marriage by any means. And as a researcher, she was she was saying, you know, I'm not trying to make a case for plural marriage, or I'm not trying to defend it, but I, or why, I'm not trying to make a case for why it's logical, hmm. but I do want to understand why those who defended it thought that it was logical. And one of the points that she makes, and this is something that I've sat with for a really, that I've really sat with for years, um, and that informs a lot of my thinking. And so this is maybe a weird starting point, but it's where I start, it's where I start, is she was looking back at journals, because Victorian romanticism, really started kind of to take root in the latter 1700s, um, started to kind of take root even more in the early 1800s, you know, by the mid 1800s. And you, this is all this idea of Victorian romanticism as a new way of thinking about marriage, right? That what was mm -hmm. then, we just call it love and marriage. They called it the love-based marriage, right? Where it was, it was much more of the, the emotional draw and the emotional satisfaction that we get from marriage became kind of the, the primary thinking, much more than sociological or economic reasons that may have been uh, primary before that. But so it's throughout the 20th century, you know, you start to have these the more and more romantic, Victorian romantic narratives and reasons that people were choosing to get married. And her thesis is that Joseph Smith was de-romanticizing marriage, right? When we get into Nauvoo and he starts teaching about marriage as an order of priesthood, and that the qualities of love um, are the qual same qualities of love, you know, when Joseph Smith is, um, and again, this is her thesis, but I, I re it resonates with me on a lot of levels that, you know, when Joseph Smith, you know, the introduction to the school of prophets, this bond of love and the, these sorts of things that she said, that's the same quality of marriage that, or sorry, same quality of love that Joseph Smith was thinking when it comes to marriage, that, that mm -hmm. marriage, you know, Joseph Smith didn't use this language that, but that marriage is, is a school of love, not just a product of love, right? It's this yeah. institution that is designed to pressure us. It's designed to call out our best. Right? right, even as it often brings out our worst, right? Mm -hmm. And this this crucible effect that marriage has as it teaches us to become godly, right? As men and women enter into this 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 highest order of priesthood through which the ultimate experience of divine sort of generativity, right, and and creativity and and uh, procreativity and all that. Um, you know, becomes kind of central. So anyway, but her thought was, is that as then, as Joseph Smith was teaching plural marriage, you know, as we get into Utah, there were people who really struggled with plural marriage, but there were also people who really thrived in plural marriage. And one of her theses was, and this is kind of where I think uh, a key theme that I, I would want to speak to here is that, that it would be true even in a monogamous context, is that, um, she talks about the difference. She said that, you know, as you read the journals of those who really defended versus those who really struggled, there's a theme that really begins to emerge and that those who really struggled with plural marriage were those who thought of marriage in Victorian romantic terms. Mm. And those who thrived in plural marriage thought of marriage in more priestly terms, right? That, that um, they had priestly narratives of marriage. 
And I think, you know, they saw marriage as an institution that was designed to foster selflessness and um, to, to foster an eternal perspective. You know, she uses Fanny, not Fanny Alger, um, Oh, I'm blinking on the name, but there's, there's a early kind of critic of marriage who, um, you know, she left, she was in a plural marriage, left the marriage, left the church and became a pretty vocal critic. But her criticism of marriage was not on like, you know, feminist grounds. It was on Victorian romantic ground that hmm. I longed to be the sole queen and mistress of my husband's heart. Right. I mean, that's good romantic marriage. And this, you know, Mormonism robbed me of that. Right. That kind of hmm. thing. And so there's a sense in which, you know, even without plural marriage, especially now, right, where, where marriage is becoming an increasingly fragile institution, um, we have to ask ourselves, what is a narrative of marriage that can even sustain an eternal duration? Right, we think of eternal marriage as just you know you kneel across an altar and you know uh, you know have somebody you know authorize it, but but that's you know I work with a lot of people who have been you know have been married in the temple, but they are still thinking of marriage in very kind of consumer terms, Victorian romantic terms, right? It's a lot of you know social exchange. Um, utility, you know, someone who meets my needs and makes me happy. That's not love language. That's you. That's utility language. Hmm. And so when we think of, when we think of people and when we think of marriage in terms of the utility they offer us versus something much more divine and much more purposeful, um, I think it does create a very fragile foundation on which to build this thing. So, so a question that I've been wrestling with for years, isn't just well, there's a lot of things, but, but this, this idea of what is a story of marriage, a narrative marriage, especially in, in, you know, in my profession, there's a growing number of trainings on, um, on uh, working with polyamorous couples, uh, consensual non-monogamy, open relationships. I mean, this is, it's just the idea of, of lifelong monogamy, to say nothing of eternity, mm-hmm. is not even really valued anymore uh, to a large degree without strong religious undercurrents. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. So, and so I think, you know, I think that the cultural pull on relationships uh, that, you know, we, we find ourselves in tension with our kind of these theological underpinnings, what, you know, we find ourselves in tension with, with cultural values that really saturate our popular media. And we consume a steady diet of popular yeah. And, and those tensions are, I think, becoming increasingly powerful and perhaps even painful for many people for whom the ideal and what is portrayed as ideal um, is very much at odds with, I think, what is ultimately mature, right? When it comes mm-hmm. to long-term relationships, you know, that we just have this idea that if it was, if it was, if it was right and if it was true love, then it would be easy and it's spontaneous and it's passionate. And, and once you have to work at it, maybe that, maybe we just found the wrong one. Maybe we, you know, we're close too early. You know, I've worked with a number of couples who have said things like, if I, if it weren't for my religious values, I would have been out a long time ago. So I have, you know, who are saying, you know, I need to, you know, it's my, the, it's my belief in a, in a covenant ideal 
that's led me to continue to kind of wrestle with and figure out how do I love better and can we make this work? And, and I mean, it really does uh, become, a, again, a kind of crucible that forces growth and for us to think differently than just what a lot of, um, again, I think popular media is going to be um, socializing us to do. I love this idea that we need to change our paradigm around marriage and what it should be for us when you talk about marriage being a school of love and that it is designed to put pressure on us. I think that's, I mean, we all understand, in fact, just, you know, in the last couple of weeks in our come follow me study, we've been talking about the fall and the effects of that transgression in Eden and what that means for each of us (laughs) as we're here Mm -hmm. um, experiencing trial and difficulty. But, you know, the, the phrase we, we taste the bitter in order to appreciate the sweet. And Mm -hmm. I think um, in marriage, we need to understand that it's the same principle opposition in all things for the purpose of helping us to achieve Godhood and achieve joy in this life. Nothing Mm -hmm. that comes easily will help us to become what we're meant to become (laughs) or help Mm -hmm. us to achieve again, the, the, the level of happiness uh, enjoy that God intends for us. But I think that that's a hard thing for us to swallow, even with all of our doctrinal understanding of our purpose. So obviously you, you've worked with a number of couples and I'm sure that you've worked with a number of, of indi- individuals who are unmarried or divorced. Um, so from your own experience and from your study, how does marriage impact an individual's well-being? It's hard to distill it down. So give me just a second to think about this. Because I think there's certainly, we all have a, cer- a certain, you know, we have, we, we have these needs for connection and belonging, right? Mm-hmm. And for me, there's this as a little bit of a double-edged sword because I see a real positive here. And then I see, also see a little bit of some cultural negatives here. In that, you know, human beings are wired for connection, right? Our, our nervous system is built to require a kind of resonance that happens when we are when when we experience a kind of presence and attunement uh, with other humans, right? And we all need that. And there's something really beautiful about marriage in which we experience that, right? There's this sort of focus um, on each other, right? And this is where marriage is also painful when it's not going well, is that it can be a really powerful way of experiencing this really deep and meaningful connection uh, with another human, but it also can be very alienating when we don't have that, right? Right. And that's where it becomes a little bit of a double-edged sword in that I think we're designed as humans to have that experience of resonance and connection and meaning and belonging with a number of people, right? And this is where if I can kind of wax theological here for a second, I want to Uh, I think we often kind of have this idea of marriage is the center and other relationships become kind of periphery. And I don't know, um, I'm prepared to be challenged on this a little bit, but I'm not sure that that's actually theologically uh, correct in the sense that, um, you know, if, if we, if there's an order of operations to the restoration, right. An order of operations to what the Lord chose to reveal to us, Right. And I get that marriage is purposeful within this broader eternal kind of scheme. But, you know, when, you know, when the saints get to Kirtland, I mean, one of the earliest 
and most really powerful revelations that they receive there is this revelation that we have today in DNC uh, 76, right? The, the vision of the different degrees of glory. And when Joseph and Sidney have this vision of the celestial world, and this was very important to me too. I mean, a lot of my thinking was, you know, for there was a lot of years where I didn't think that I was going to get married. And so a big part of my, you know, one of my kind of primary prayers and a lot of part of my personal work was how do you be happy? How do you flourish and be a happy, healthy, single individual when so much of our culture, both, both religious and otherwise, is, is all focused around marriage, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so much of my work was like, I, I want to figure out how to really thrive as a single individual when it just seems like so many single people struggle with that, right? And so this became, this was really important to me. And so there was some real key things that the Lord was teaching me during this time that I think are, I think that they're, they were very, certainly very important for me at the time. And I think that they're true more broadly as well, where, you know, when Joseph and Sidney have this vision of the celestial world, um, you know, they, they describe celestial sociality collectively. There was no theology of marriage in this description of the celestial glory, right? Mm-hmm. The, the entire church of the firstborn, all of those, these exalted beings together communally see as we are seen and know as we are known. Right. So there's this infinite quality of intimacy. Hmm. And, um, and, you know, we use the word intimacy as a euphemism for sex, which I think is one of the most problematic and dangerous things that we can do. Hmm. Right. And I, it's just, you know, I, for whatever reason, we just are uncomfortable with the S word. Right. And I just don't, I will never, you know, will, um, I feel so strongly about this that I, I joke with my students. I'm like, after the semester, because we spend a whole day just talking about human intimacy, right? Oh, Before uh-huh. we ever start thinking about, you know, marital intimacy and then sexual intimacy within marriage, we talk about human intimacy. And, I, and I'll, I'll joke with them that if I ever hear them use intimacy as a euphemism for sex, I will retroactively fail them, right? <laughs> and because it's, it's that important to me. Because that really is, this is divine sociality where we all together experience this infinite quality of connection, intimacy. You know, the Latin root of the word intimacy, intimus, means innermost and to go deeper. So anytime I allow another human into my innermost parts and they allow me into their innermost parts to really see and be seen and know and be known, there's a real quality of intimacy that we're designed to experience on a much broader level than marriage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then as we get to marriage, right, as an order of priesthood, right, again, we just can't, we think it just starts with marriage. But if you think, if we really understand marriage as this sort this kind of capstone ordinance, every other ordinance in the church is designed to teach us something first, right? We make these covenants at baptism where we mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that come, stand in need of comfort and all these sorts of things. And then we make covenants associated with priesthood and then the endowment, right? I really believe that in, until, if, if, we, if we don't really understand the law of consecration, you can't understand marriage, hmm, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, un, that understanding these other co- covenants that we make that are associated with the endowment are prerequisite. But we, we thought we had marriage down with Jane Austen. 
<laughs> right? And, and that's really what, I mean, you know, and Disney and all this stuff, right? I mean, we, we know marriage, right? Hmm. But we don't, we don't. And so you have all of these other covenants and, and um, that we make and, the, and these sort of spiritual capacities and principles that are designed to build on each other. And then we have this capstone that has a very important eternal function. I absolutely believe in the doctrine of marriage, even though I think culturally we've made in marriage, in some respects, we've made it, a, we have, we're guilty of a species of idolatry in the way that we sometimes often talk about marriage and, mm -hmm. and put it ahead of other important things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's not, that it's not important, but I think we talk about it sometimes in a disordered way. And, uh, and then in that way, it becomes a kind of idolatry. And so, but I think, but I think that order of operations is very important. And so you have this, again, that in the celestial world, we have, again, something communally before we ever get teaching around a distinct function and a distinct purpose that marriage has, but it's within the whole, as opposed to us just living in these kind of separate little microcosms, you know, in eternity mm -hmm. uh, in ways that I just don't, I don't think is uh, theologically accurate or correct. So and, and, you know, and a lot of people that I work with in marriage and, or, you know, couples that I work with in therapy, when you have marriage as a closed system, where this one person is supposed to meet all of your needs, I think that puts too much of a pressure, too much pressure on another human being to be things that they are, I think, are, are not designed to be in the sense that one person was not designed to meet all of your needs and make you happy. You know, again, without without diminishing the importance, I want to, I don't want to make sure I'm not being misheard here, but none of this is to 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 diminish the importance of that marital relationship because I actually I absolutely believe in and have a very strong conviction of the value of that relationship, but because of the cultural frame that we have, we see that as everything, and you know, once we're married, you just kind of close everybody else out. And, uh, you know, when people create these closed systems, I think it becomes uh, really problematic um, in a lot of ways. And that stress um, becomes, that, that the stress that we put on that person is a problem. Tell me any other thoughts or that you're having. You're blowing my mind and going places I just didn't even anticipate, which is so great. Um, originally, I was thinking that you would kind of make a case for the value of marriage and maybe even just like give us some statistics, like, you know, married people tend to live longer or have better health or, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so we don't need to go there. Um, but that's where I thought you were going to go. And <laughs> yes, well, and those things are true too, right? But right. The, the thing is, is that it's a both and it's a both. And. Yes. Yes. In the yes. sense that we have this, um, there is something powerful about that intimacy or that, that, but it, there's a pressuring. I think we just sort of have, again, these really um, romantic ideas about marriage, but it's, it's, but it's better than that when it's more substantive, right? Yeah. I mean, most oh, of yeah. think, our cultural ideals are a little frothy, right? And, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and kind of empty, but I think, but when we really, when, 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 when marriage you know, when we have to, when we hurt each other's feelings and have to learn how to forgive, right? I mean, that takes some of the, the fantasy out of marriage, right? Mm -hmm. But it also to be, you know, again, to really be seen. And there's a, a Christian writer, he said, and I think this is actually, it's in a book on marriage, but 
This is a Timothy Keller, who's a Christian writer. It's in a book on marriage, but I actually typically when I when I quote this, I, I quote it in, in much broader terms. But he said that, you know, to be loved but not known is sweet but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear, right? And But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. And his point was that, you know, marriage is a, is a kind of this, this experience where we really have to practice seeing and being seen and knowing and being known where we have to really let people know, uh, let our spouse, our spouse is going to know all of our flaws and our foibles. And we, you know, it's, it's really easy to love somebody when, you know, when they're never challenging our capacity to love. Yeah. But as soon as they start challenging our capacity to love and it becomes an effort, uh, which is where I think so many people become kind of disillusioned, right? With, with love and marriage and that it's like, well, it sh- if it's true love, it shouldn't be hard, right? Eric Fromm, he's a, uh, a German psychologist. He wrote a classic book called The Art of Loving. He said, the problem with love is that most people think that loving is easy. It's finding the right people to love that's hard, right? He says, but when we truly understand what love is, we understand that developing a capacity to love is very, very hard. But once we do, finding people to love is very, very easy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, I'm, and that's what our culture doesn't, doesn't embed deeply enough within us, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I think even within our religious culture, I think even though we have the theological resources there to, to, to really believe that, I think sometimes we still kind of talk about it uh, in, in some of these pop cultural terms. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. hundred percent. There's a, uh, a Christian kind of online journal, Christian academic journal called first things. And there were a couple of sociologists who were, they wrote a piece called the burdensome myth of romantic love. And one of the things that they were talking about was that, that there's a, that we've, we've kind of put all of these needs and all, you know, all of these kind of social needs that we typically have, we've put all of these on, on one on one person, right? But then they, but then they talk about how kind of in in this sort of in the increasing disaffiliation with religion, this one researcher, I'm just going to quote this, uh, Dr. Seller Ballstrup theorizes that as people be, be abandoned religious institutions, they start expecting romantic relationships to satisfy a host of needs that formerly were satisfied through, through religion. Uh, mm-hmm. If you think clean laundry and regular meals require effort, try meeting the relation the demands of relationship worship, circa 2018. By providing transcendence, unconditional love, wholeness, meaning, worth, and communion, right? And then they go on to say, the Western fixation on romantic love creates a crushing burden for mere mortals. It engenders a powerful myth regarding love, courtship, and marriage that a fallible human partner can not only share our passions, but sate our existential yearnings. Contemporary couples expect much more from marriage than it can realistically deliver. A phenomenon uh, noted by social psychologists as one researcher observes Quote, most of us will be kind of shocked by how many expectations and needs we piled on top of this one relationship. So, so for me, a lot of as good as relationship is, because there's a, as, as, as good as marriage is, there's a lot of people making that case. But, then, which I, but I also think there's a distortion there when that's not held in balance with these broader social needs. But then the flip side, you have the pendulum swing because that's too much. The pendulum swing is to devalue marriage. And that's what you see happening more and more in our culture, right? I mean, we want love and romance but but you know with uh, this whole kind of deal death to you part thing we'll kind of pass on that right <laughs> and so you know it's, when it works it works and when it doesn't it doesn't you know we just again there's less of a value on the sort of sustaining 
like allowing marriage to be a primary teacher in school and crucible that that enables us to to develop these godlike attributes that we that are part of what it means to become an exalted being and it does those things that you said right i mean like people, <laughs> you know people have you know uh you know mental health is better and i mean there's just a lot of things we have and i think a lot of it is because we do have these needs for meaning and connection and um, and marriage is a very powerful way for those needs to be met, which is why it's really good when it's good and why it's really hard and painful for those that struggle. We're so entrenched in the cultural narrative of what marriage is that mm-hmm. even though as Latter-day Saints, we, we do have the doctrine that we can rely upon to better understand the, the marriage relationship and the purpose behind it, we carry all of this cultural baggage around. We are not immune to the struggle that the world is faced with when it comes to this, this topic of marriage as well. And, and I really feel like it requires us to almost like go to the whiteboard and do a bunch of erasing. <laughs> So that we can yeah. get a totally different perspective on something that really has been either, well, Satan has influenced this topic so much and muddied it and watered it down to be simply just this, as you said, kind of this utility relationship where it's a quid pro quo. If you're not doing for me what I expect you to, then I'm moving on to greener right. pastures. Right. So yeah. I hope for our listeners that perhaps you might need to take a few steps back and recognize the Lord wants us to be happy in our relationships, but even more so, I I think he wants us to understand that this is an opportunity for us to get better acquainted with him, with ourselves and to become more like him in this relationship. So as Latter-day Saints, we, we hold to the traditional view of marriage as being between a man and woman. You know, in the proclamation, we read that marriage between man and woman is ordained of God. That's become very unpopular with certain populations <laughs> and it's becoming more so. Um, and happiness, uh, as it goes on to say, happiness in family life is most likely to be achieved when founded upon the teachings of Jesus Christ. So I asked Ty to speak to this topic for a number of reasons, but those who don't know Ty, you identify as same-sex attracted, you wrote in quiet desperation. So some of you might be familiar with that, Um, but Ty identifies as SSA. You were single for a number of years, and now you're a therapist and you're married with five kids. So you have just all of this experience and and Mm -hmm. background on this subject. Um, How do you see, and this is probably just a continuation of what we've been talking about, but really how do you see the traditional marriage relationship between man and woman, um, again, grounded upon Christ's teachings, providing the best context to achieve happiness and more importantly, our divine potential. I think that there are probably two things, right? Because you've got, you have this idea of gender complementarity, right? That's, I think, essential for two reasons. you know, there's a, there's a talk, I teach at BYU as well. And um, the class that I teach at BYU is called the Eternal Family. And one of the, one of the, um, this, one of the readings that's in the curriculum that the students have to read is, it was a training that Elder Bednar gave called Marriage is Essential to His Eternal Plan. But I was just rereading it. So it's kind of fresh on my mind. But one of the things that, you know, he kind of talks about these two things where 
inherently in the eternities, and this is where I think the, the, the church is just, you know, especially as people anticipate that the church is going to somehow change to accommodate same-sex marriage or same-sex ceilings. You know, I mean, certainly there are a number of people who don't believe that the doctrine is going to change, but there are a growing number, I think, of kind of liberal, progressive, oriented Latter-day Saints who are really kind of hoping that the church will change and trying to make th that case, right? Yeah. But I don't, I think if, if, if marriage is only about um, the attachment bonds of consenting adults, then when it comes to, uh, you know, when it comes to attachment bonds, you know, when gay couples say, you know, why is, um, why is your attachment bond better than my attachment bond? Then, you know, we just, we don't have anything to say. And in a sense, they're right, right? Why mm -hmm. is your attachment bond better than my attachment bond? And, but the, and that's where the culture is, right? And this is where it becomes really problematic as Latter-day Saints are increasingly becoming saturated with these broader cultural narratives that are just about attachment bonds, utility, consenting adults, et cetera, right? Yeah. And, um, and so, but the doctrine of marriage being rooted first and foremost in the capacity to create life and, um, and this idea that, that it requires a man and a woman together, as Elder Bednar calls, the authorized channel by which the plan of salvation is perpetuated, right? As our brother and sister spirits are moving on to their second second estate and all these sorts of things. Again, the, this cosmic narrative, or what again, what, uh, what Kathleen Flake would call a priestly narrative, is much more cosmic than just the attachment bonds of consenting adults. Yeah. Right? And the emotional utility of, of those attachment bonds. And, and not, to, not to diminish, I think that there certainly can be a context in which people practice love, right, in those relationships, but it's more than that. And that's the important thing to consider, that the frame, the relationship and the structure that is required to provide bodies for spirits, right? And so this idea that the, 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 in the proclamation on the family, that the, the commandment to, to multiply and replenish the earth is still in force, right? And that's still... And even for people who are not married, it's still, we're still honoring that, right? And one of the things, you know, Sherry Du, and I think it was the first, wasn't the first general conference talk that she gave, but it was the first talk she gave in a general session of general conference. She had spoken in the women's session before, but here's, here's Sherry Du, who's never married. And the first talk that she gives to a general session is, it is not good that the man or woman should be alone. And so here's Sherry Du, and this is what I think is a really beautiful model of someone who is single but still really honors this the importance of this complementarity for those creative purposes right and i think sometimes even this idea of it's not good that the man or woman should be alone we have kind of appropriated that idea you know in, in genesis that statement you know we kind of use that statement we'll see god just doesn't want people to be lonely and so you need to have someone in your life so that you're not lonely Right. Again, we're thinking in 20th, 21st century terms where God just wants you just need these attachment bonds. Right. Yeah. And yeah. but in the context of Genesis, this is about creation. Where where 
you know, all of life is, you know, commanded to multiply and replenish and, and, but Adam is alone. Adam can't create life on his own. So it is not good for the man to be alone, right? Because he mm -hmm. can't fulfill the commandment in that way to create life, right? So certainly there's that piece and, the, and Elder Bednar kind of focuses on that piece and, and these, you know, these resonate with me. But then the other piece is there's something about, it. and I think this is a little bit harder to quantify or to really, uh, to articulate because humans are so different. I mean, there's such a diversity of men and women and temperaments and, but that, you know, men and women net net are uniquely suited, right? That our temperaments and all these things that we, we respectively bring to a relationship are really important for that eternal growth and refinement. But again, I think it's a, other than, you know, talking on real high level principle, it's really hard to kind of quantify when you have some men who are very nurturing and some women who are not, and mm. you have, um, you know, you have some women that, you know, are very, even some of the feminine metaphors that we use for Christ, right? As a hen, Christ will gather his children as a hen gathereth her, you know, chicks as a hen gathereth her chicks on her wings, or I think I botched that a little bit, but you know what I mean? Yeah. But this idea of that's a very protective influence or a protective impulse. I mean, the scripture is using a feminine metaphor to describe the protective impulse of, of Christ. Right. And so when the proclamation on the family says that it's, it's, you know, it's primarily a, a, a the male responsibility or a father's responsibility to preside, provide and protect, you know, it's, there are lots of ways and, but, you know, men need to be nurturers, but women are presiding, providing and protecting as well. And, so I think it's, it's hard to kind of fully, uh, fully articulate that really well. But I do believe on a level of principle that I think we still are trying to really articulate is there is something about the, the experience of masculinity and femininity and the temperaments of men and the temperaments of women that are designed to come together in a way that fosters growth that is required for us to become fully as God is. There's something there that's really important that I think um, certainly that the church is going to hold to, but that I think we're not fully articulating outside of sex roles. I really appreciate you bringing up with marriage and marriage between a man and a woman uh, comes this opportunity to procreate, which we know is the, the foundation of God's plan being perpetuated. I think so often in our culture, we're more and more untethering marriage from the parental responsibility. And a big part of the joy that we experience within marriage is not just the marriage, it's the whole pie, which is having children and the experience that that brings. You can, might be able to compare it to marriage being a beautiful flower and having a family you have a beautiful bouquet. You know, there was a there was a New York Times, a New York Times, a Time Magazine cover story a few years ago, and the the cover story title was something to the effect of "When Having It All Means Not Having Kids," right? Mm -hmm. And part of that cultural narrative that puts so much on like passion and novelty and all these sorts of things that um uh, that you know really uh, again so have sort of infected um even the the understanding of some latter-day saints our narrative of marriage is much more is kind of tied to that 
I wrote a piece for the Deseret News uh, last year, and one of the comments that I made there was that, you know, it's almost as if Jesus had said, quote, greater love hath no man or woman than this, that any and all consenting adults should experience passionate romance, intimate pair bonding, and maximize sexual fulfillment all the days of their life. And be wary of children, or they may inhibit life satisfaction, right? And, you know, and it's sort of like there's this, I think, you know, when we think about who Jesus was, it's one of those things that kind of brings to contrast, you know, I think some of what Jesus was really teaching that um, I think we sometimes just don't fully comprehend just how subtly at odds a lot of these cultural narratives are, but we've adopted them. Yeah. Right. Even as a culture, because we think that they're, you know, at least on the surface, they seem uh, congruent, right. With our, our, beliefs and values around marriage, but they also at the same time become kind of a subtle cancer, right? That eats away at the very same thing that we think that they're complementing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And one, one of the things, if, if we could even go, uh, if, if I could just kind of zoom out and share a little bit of a personal experience um, that led me to where marriage felt like a really healthy possibility for me, because I think is one of the risks that I think I'm always sensitive to as we talk about this, because I really believe all this stuff. And yet I'm also sensitive to the, the, some people hearing that is just providing this very empty kind of sterile view of marriage, that it's just about childbearing and all you need is the right parts and, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I have to back up that to that because I don't, that's not how I feel. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was single, and, and actually many years before I got married, it was when, because from the time, you know, there was a period of time where I was trying to figure out whether I could do, kind of navigate this you know, within the church. I wanted to, and I was always believed, but it just, the comments just were pretty intense, and I wasn't quite sure how to navigate them. And I didn't really have any mentors or role models right at the time. There just weren't that many resources at the time. And so, but I finally reached this place where I was, um, I had some very powerful spiritual experiences that led me to recommit. And in one of those, the spirit said very powerfully that I was to prepare myself to never be married. And in some ways, and again, the spirit can communicate things that, again, it's speaking not just words, but um, communicating ideas in a very powerful way. And it just, there was something very peaceful about that. Like it didn't feel, it felt right and it felt peaceful. It didn't feel like I was being robbed of something um but I felt it was actually very liberating that I so that kind of became my focus like I need just to prepare myself to um to be single and that led to this kind of question that I was kind of praying about and thinking about and researching and all that just how do you how do you be a happy healthy single person in the church in a very family oriented church when sometimes that family focus can feel a little alienating But in all of that, at one point, kind of early on, I was still, I felt in, I was all in, but it was still really hard um, in a way that it just doesn't feel anymore. But at the time, it felt really hard and kind of conflicted. And I was really praying and fasting, actually, uh, going into General Conference. And this this is October General Conference of 2004. And as I was going into conference, um, it was actually the afternoon session, a Saturday. I remember it so well. 
the as soon as they said the opening prayer, I had this like the spirit just rested on me. And I felt really just sort of bathed. And I don't know how to describe it um, other than like a vision, but it wasn't seeing, it was a vision of feeling. Uh, it's hard to describe, but, but it was this feeling that I felt, but it was like a vision in the sense that it was like, it, for two hours, I sat in this feeling of celestial love and the Lord teaching me that this is what you will feel in the celestial kingdom. And it will become a permanent state of your being. And you will feel this for a woman. And that feeling, it was so glorious and so beautiful. It made everything that we call love. And even the way we talk about sexuality in human terms, feel very shallow and earthy. I don't know. I don't, those, it's hard to, to even know what, how to describe it. But certainly very telestial. And so when we talk about marriage and family and love and sexuality and all these sorts, we're talking, usually we're talking in very telestial terms, but we kind of project that telestial frame onto eternity. And one of the things that I, it was just, it was so powerful to me. Um, that became my prayer. And then after, as the closing prayer of that session, uh, as they said, amen, it was, it lifted and it was gone. <laughs> and, but that, that, that experience has been a reference point for me ever since that, you know, when we talk about love or, or, or for when Morona talks about love, right. And he says that, you know, true love, true charity comes only to those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ and who pray with all the energy of their heart. If he is right. And I believe that he is then we also have to understand that true celestial love, the most nourishing and powerful love is a spiritual gift. It's not something that comes through this cocktail of dopamine and norepinephrine and oxytocin and this kind of neurochemical cocktail that we've come to associate with love. It's not just about attachment bonds that happen on a purely human telestial level. Does that make sense? Even as meaningful as it can be, True celestial love is a spiritual gift that only the spirit can give us and infuse us with. And so the next several years, that became my prayer. I wanted that love and I wanted to understand that love. And, and, I, and interestingly enough, you know, I've, I've, you know, I wrote a book with some colleagues called The Power of Stillness as well on mindful living. And part of my intersection with Eastern thought was related to this question. I mean, it was a lot of things because it's all over mental health and, but I was drawn to it for a number of reasons. But in Eastern thought, I actually think Eastern conceptions of love are closer to gospel conceptions of love than our Western conception. A lot of Eastern conceptions of love, love um, in order for it to be love, it must be free. The degree to which I need you, which is very romantic, right? You have me at hello, you complete (laughs) me, these sorts of things that we love, right? The degree to which I need you is the degree to which my capacity to truly love you is compromised because needs are about me and love has to be purely gift. Um, When I, as I was kind of praying and trying for this capacity to love and and these sorts of things and having a lot of, you know, some of these spiritual experiences before I met my wife, I had kind of reached this place where I just felt like I really want to gift. Like I felt, I, I just had really kind of 
deeply rooted in this idea that, that love is something that you choose and it's a gift and it's, it comes from God and, you know, and it, it, it's not, you know, just about social exchange and utility. And my wife, when I, well, then not my, when I started dating Danielle, like I really was drawn to her as just a person. It wasn't about this kind of like, you know, just romantic and sexual pull that, you know, hopefully we can make this work. Like I it just felt deeply spiritual and it was really beautiful. And I, I mm-hmm. liked it. And I wanted, it was this interesting feeling of like, I wanted to gift love to her. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I fell in love. So in many ways, sometimes when I tell this story, I have to like, I'm like, this is not a very romantic story, but it's like, <laughs> I love it. I love, I love this story. And she was conflicted about it at first, but, but I felt like I didn't, it wasn't like I was falling in love with her. I really liked her. And I really, I wanted to gift love to her. And again, this feels very not, this is not the way we talk about things here in, in the West, but, but that's how I felt. And she came down and we started dating. I, we, it was actually over a Christmas break. We were both in Utah, started dating and things were going, it just felt really good, but it felt like riding the spiritual way. It was really, um, again, just deeply spiritual, but very good. And it felt very right. And Anyway, she came down at one point because it was just over like three weeks break. And it's like, well, where do we go from here? Because I was going back to Texas where I was working on my doctorate. And um, she, you know, we just wasn't really, we weren't really sure because practically speaking, we didn't know how we were going to continue. But she's, she decided to come down and she stayed with me for about four days uh, a few weeks later. And one of the things that she said, so she comes into my apartment and I'm 31 at this point. And I, I was like, I just decided I was done. I'm not rooming with anybody. I'm going to adult. I'm going to fully adult. <laughs> and I have my own program, my own apartment. And I can, you know, that's one of my gay, stereotypically gay qualities. Like I could decorate. And so I've got this really nicely decorated, furnished apartment. And I've got food in the fridge. I know how to cook for myself and stuff in the pantry. And as she, as we're going through the house, and her version of this is slightly different, but I think mine's right. As we're going through the, my apartment, I could just... She's kind of deflating. And like, there were just times over the weekend that that she was staying that I just, she just seemed a little deflated. And at one point she said to me, and at some point that we had had a conversation around, I think, I think we know where this is going. Right. And, um, but she said, I just, I feel like you don't need me. Hmm. And I said, I don't need you. And to her, that was like kind of devastating. Yeah. But for me, that was very liberating. And I said, I, I'm not with you because I need you. I'm with you because I want you. Like, I want to be with you. Like, and she said at first, later, I mean, she just really did not like that at all. And then later we had another conversation about that conversation. And she said, at first I felt, it just felt, I just felt really insecure because part of her kind of shadow MO was you need people to need you because if they don't need you, they will leave you. Mm, yeah. But, but the, but the other side of that, that that's a, that that's a problematic um, belief because the, the other side of that is if the, if you don't need me, then why would you stay with me? Or would, will you stay with me if you don't need me? So I just have to make sure. So she always kind of found herself in relationships, like trying to make them need her. Does that make sense? Which yeah. can be a little shadowy and, and kind of graspy. And she said, I, when I realized that I didn't have power to make you need me, it felt really insecure and I didn't like that. But the more that I sat with that, 
the more I felt more peace with that because I believed your love was a choice and I trusted that you would not unchoose it. Hmm. And to me, it was, there was something in that, that I was like, yes, like this, it was like this culmination of all of these spiritual feelings and intimations about what true love is. And like the spirit that was under underneath all of that. I mean, it, there was just so much of it that felt so good and right. But again, in many ways, it's just very contra our, our cultural ways of thinking. So sometimes when, even when I tell the story, it's just like, oh, he just has an empty, sterile marriage. I mean, they just don't even have love. So he has to theologize it, right? I mean, this kind of mm-hmm. thing where I, I sometimes feel like, um, not that I have to defend it because there's nothing to defend, but I, I want what I, what I also think is important because I think these are true for, I think these principles are true for everyone, not just sexual minorities. All of us, if, we're, if, if marriage is going to be sustainable in this covenant sense, it must be based on charity and it must be based on this celestial love, right? These other kind of the human experience will flavor that, but I think there, we, that the foundation has to be more eternal, more spirit, spirit-led, spirit-grounded, you know, and um, in ways that, again, we're just not really inclined, you know, when we're to, to think about when we're thinking about marriage in, in more Victorian romantic terms and less in these, you know, eternal priestly narrative terms. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. And I love the experience that you shared from General Conference 2004. You kind of wish, not kind of, you wish that we could all experience that, that celestial love so that we could just transcend all the garbage (laughs) that we, that again, all this cultural baggage that we carry around about love and marriage and what that really needs to be in order for us to be happy. And um, as Latter-day Saints, as we're trying to become more like our heavenly parents, recognizing that this charity that you're talking about and that the covenants that we make, that should be so much more of our focus in our preparing for marriage and in our discussion uh, about marriage with, with our spouses and in, in a church. What you said, when we don't need someone, we, we're suddenly able to gift them our love. We keep talking about this utility type of love. Um, then it's no longer about others meeting our expectations, which again is so much of the problem that we run into. Well, we we're going to shift gears here a little bit. Um, I was reading an an article in a magazine that I get like biannually (laughs) and it it mentioned that they were, had conducted interviews um, to find out what big issues were facing Latter-day Saint newlyweds. And what they discovered was challenges with healthy communication and sexual intimacy, finances, conflict resolution, expectations. And we could probably, (laughs) all of those things, we could probably pull into this discussion that we've had. I suspect that these are issues that continue to plague couples through the marriage. And for the sake of time, we're not going to cover all of them. But I did want to speak specifically to uh, the the sexual relationship in marriage. And and I'm really interested to hear where we go with where we've been on this subject, Mm -hmm. because um, 
Again, this is a hard topic. It's delicate. And I feel like very few of us are well prepared going into marriage to navigate this aspect of our relationship. So Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts on how we can approach sexual intimacy in our marriages with this more of a a charitable attitude, uh, a learning Mm -hmm. attitude, um, recognizing that it's a skill that we actually need to develop. (laughs) It's not just going to come naturally like the movies tell us it is, Mm -hmm. but what can we do to help nurture this important aspect of the relationship? Again, really good question. I think somehow we as a culture have to allow ourselves to be a little bit clunkier um, just because that's how we learn uh, in some, in, in this conversation, because I think as you were saying, like we just like sex seems to, in a lot of people's minds, and there's probably again, a couple different reasons for this. You know, I was working on a book with a colleague where we were talking, we were kind of, it's kind of on hiatus, but we were talking about this integration of sexuality and spirituality and and how do you how do you integrate those two because in many ways when those two when spirituality and sexuality are not together right when when they sort of exist independently though i don't think you can have healthy either without the other but we have a lot of our kind of pop cultural um narratives and um conversation around sexuality is very much all kind of sexuality, no spirituality, because I think spirituality to a large degree is sort of, you know, it's, it's going to kind of ruin the party, so to speak. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then in our cult, in religious cultures and any really conservative religious culture of which ours is only one, there is, again, it, there's this kind of behavioristic focus around sexuality. And as long as it's, you know, as long as it's in marriage, it's legal, but don't talk about it because that makes us all feel uncomfortable. And, um, and it's just this really kind of a tortured relationship. And, and so we've got, we have to bring those two together, like true mature sexuality cannot exist without mature spirituality. And I would say mature spirituality cannot exist without mature sexuality. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, and so you know, and on all parts of ourselves too, I think are hindered. There was actually a book on uh, emotional health by a Christian writer who talked about how, why it's impossible to be spiritually mature while being remaining emotionally immature, right? That the maturity and eat in all of these different domains of our lives uh, all um, kind of work together, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think that sexual piece is really important in that um, I think how parent how parents talk about sexuality is really key. I'm not even sure that I want it to be coming from the church per se. I don't think that's the church's domain. I think there's more and more coming out that's good. You know, you've got Elder Holland's kind of classic talk of soul symbols and sacraments. There was an edition of the Enzyme, I think last, I think it was 2021, maybe 2020, that was very much dedicated to talking about sexuality and healthy sexuality and more of a positive view. And so there are, there are more and more resources coming out from the church or from good kind of solid Latter-day Saint frame or kind of solid, solid Latter-day Saint sources. But I think at the end of the day, we all, like, I think it's, it's parents' responsibility to start, but often we didn't, that's not where we came from. Um, And I know that I didn't, my parents never, nobody ever had any conversations with me. 
Hmm. And here I was, I got married at 32 and my dad, bless his heart. Uh, <laughs> he, he, <laughs> here I'm 32. I'm a practicing therapist. I do sex therapy. Right. And he sends me this book that he got at the DI about, about, you know, sexuality and marriage. And he said, and, and he's, you know, includes this note. He says, um, I know we never had, we never really had a chance to talk about this. I hope it's not too late. And I, I just thought, dad, it's way too late, way too late. You know, you know as I'm a 32 yes, year old. Heart is right. Yeah. He just wanted to make sure that he had fulfilled that kind of paternal responsibility. It was long overdue. But I think, but there's an, but I think parents, I think uh, parents have to, our level of comfortability, we're going to pass that on. And so I think there's three levels here that are important. I think our own, as individuals, we, and there are a lot of things, and I'll, I'll talk about some of the ways we can do this, but I think all of us have a responsibility to really own our own sexuality and to develop a healthy level of comfortability with our own sexuality. And because only sexually healthy individuals can create sexually healthy marriages. Yeah. And only individuals in sexually, sexually healthy marriages can they then parent sexually healthy families, right? Yeah. And so yeah. There's, there's a ripple effect in terms of where it starts because individuals are not going to have a healthy conversation or are not going to teach sexuality healthily to their kids when they're uncomfortable with it themselves or it's it's, it's uncomfortable in their relationships. And, you know, I work with couples who have been married, I'm working with one couple right now who, um, you know, it's kind of the focus is more of a sex therapy focus. And they commented that, you know, they've, uh, how long have they been married? Maybe 35, 40 years. And so a long time, right? Yeah. And they're like, never talk about it. We just like do it without talking about it. But then it's always like, well, guessing what each other's thinking. It's like 40 years in, right? Like they're just not comfortable themselves, right? There's this drive and there are these feelings and it's just supposed to work. And if it doesn't work, what do we do? And so, but I think it starts with having an open, like really feeling a confident sense of, of ownership of my own sexuality that I then gift into the relationship. And then we have to talk about it. It doesn't just happen. We, we converse and we collaborate and we talk and it needs to be a really healthy, open conversation. And then, and then you know, as we experience that natural healthiness, um, I think, you know, it, it ripples, you know, you know, kind of ripples to our kids. And, you know, there's a, uh, one of the, there's a sexuality educator at BYU and um, their daughter was in one of my classes. And when we talked about this unit, she commented, she's like, you know, cause I'll ask the students, like how many of you came from like a real, you know, from everything from like, didn't have the talk to had the talk, but we're glad it was over to maybe a few clunky talks all the way up to like a really healthy conversation. Like in your home, there was a healthy culture. You could just talk about it when you wanted to talk about it. You felt comfortable talking to your parents and, and pretty consistently, you know, this is my ninth year of teaching at BYU and pretty consistently I would say it's 10 to 15% of students will say they came from a kind of a healthy, really healthy, comfortable, a home where there was a really healthy, comfortable conversation. And this one student, I just thought it was, it was interesting because she, 
yeah, the, she's like, we would just talk about it at the dinner table. I mean, it was just, mm, wow. it was just really open, right? But, but again, um, this student's parent was as a sexuality educator, something that they're very comfortable with. So I think there's a there's a that aspect of it, but I think part of it is we don't know where if our parents aren't talking about it, how where do we go to just to have that conversation? And so I think that's a little tricky, um, especially in a culture right now when parents are not talking about it. But the average age of first exposure to pornography is well between ten and twelve. So for most kids, you know, young women are the kind of the primary, as far as like uh, producers of pornography, like that primary kind of target audience is now young women, right? The male market's pretty well saturated. So if you're gonna, mm. if you're gonna broaden the market, now young women are now kind of the target in a lot of respects. And so about a third of pornography users are now women. Right. And so this isn't just a male thing, right? We need to talk about it as a, as a, a you know, men and women. But again, that, that first exposure for, for too many people, before that anybody's talking about sex at all, the church or parents, their primary form of sex education is pornography. And, and pornography is just a constant stream of novelty and spontaneity and passion. And so all of these really bad ideas that are being ingrained really young. Um, but, then, but, then it's, but the message is just, you know, don't look at pornography because that's bad. But we're not replacing it with much, right? Yeah. Right? So I think we've until we're until we're replacing it with something healthier, I think you know kids are going to continue to struggle. I mean, the access there's a lot of reasons people are going to struggle with pornography, but but that accessibility component certainly there. But I think it's going to be much more appealing to the degree that there's nowhere else to go as we're really trying to figure out what it means to be a sexual being. Uh, Victor Klein, who was, you know, he's a psychologist, and he made a, a statement at one point. He said, you know, be a true expert on sex. Read whatever books or manuals you need on the topic. You would not bake bread without a recipe, and this is much more important. Knowledge is power. However, be discriminating in what you read, taking care to find materials that are compatible with your values. And I think the problem, the challenge with that is that, um, that most people don't really know where to go. Right. What yeah. are those resources that are a going to be frank enough and honest enough to really be helpful, but that are compatible with values. And so I think have, as we have more and more resources that are available um, that provide a conversation. So when I'm talking with, you know, new, um, when I'm doing like premarital work or even with my students, I'm like, here's a list of books, you know, when you and your spouse or you and your fiance, when you get to a point where, you're kind of thinking more seriously about the marriage and you want to be having these conversations and here's some good books to read together that can help guide that conversation and in a way that's congruent with our values. So then it just helps again, foster that level of comfortability. That's really important. Any chance I could get that list of books so I could put that in the show notes <laughs> for uh -huh. our listeners. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love that. Uh, for me personally, I was mentioning to Ty before we started that I've been reading some of Lara Brotherson's books on the subject, mm -hmm. which was uh, part of what sparked this uh, episode. Yeah. But I love that you that you brought up the, the issue with teaching our children and our level mm -hmm. of comfort is going to be their level of comfort in discussing these things. And if if it's clear that we're unwilling to go there, they'll seek out other sources, which 
very often is pornography. I, I work in the field of sexual addiction and betrayal trauma. That's not something that a lot of my listeners probably know. Um, but it's, it's very unfortunate that this plague that we often hear about, you know, President Hinckley called it a plague. It is something that is becoming the youth's primary source of sexual education. And it has been for some time. And we have an opportunity as parents to give them the correct information, but we have to be very intentional about it from a young age and um, moving forward through their, their teen years so that when they have questions, they will come to us. So there's, there's one piece of it, but also President Nelson gave a talk back in 2006. Uh, the talk was, was titled Nurturing Marriage, but he said uh, that couples need to nurture their spiritual as well as physical intimacy. And so I, I love that, that you brought those two pieces up, that oftentimes we talk about them apart from one another. When we talk about nurturing our spirituality, what does that look like? Well, we're, we're praying every day. We're reading our scriptures. You know, we're going to church weekly. I think most of us know ways that we can nurture our spiritual relationship with our spouse and how to continue to grow spiritually as individuals. But we know very little about how to do that in the sexual intimacy arena of our marriages. So can you give us some ideas of what that might look like? I think it starts with a lot of conversation, right? And I think the the experience of sexual intimacy in marriage is um, where we sort of kind of practice that. But but also I wanna maybe even talk about this idea of sexuality and intimacy. You know, one of the reasons that it's important for me to differentiate those two, and even I would even say physical intimacy, Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't even use that as a euphemism for sex. But as a church, we tend to do that, right? We yeah. talk about intimacy or even physical intimacy or marital intimacy when there are, because it's just kind of in the air. Um, because, you know, when when my son was born, well, when he was, his whole life, I mean, I think his first words were cuddle and watch a show, cuddle and watch a show, <laughs> right? So every night, our night, nightly ritual was, he wants to cuddle up to daddy and we're watching another episode of Daniel Tiger, right? And and so like, that's physical intimacy. Does that make sense? And and I mean, touch is his love language. And if he's not getting, there's, there's not enough kind of time touch and talk, right? He just, he gets cranky and you can tell he's kind of running on a low tank. And so I think that's important because I, I talked to a lot of couples. I have one, one um, woman that I was talking to recently she said, you know, 18 years and I've never actually felt like he was making love to me. I always felt like he was acting out his sexuality on me. Mm-hmm. And, and that's really painful for, you know, but it was, but it's okay because it's legal. It's a marriage. It's a temple marriage. I mean, there's all these sorts of things. And so she's like, I don't even know what it looks like or what it feels like to actually make love to somebody because it's always felt a little dehumanizing for me. Mm-hmm. So so I think it's very important to really understand that, that, that sex and marriage is not by default sexual intimacy, right? Right. Int- intimacy is this quality of knowing and being known. And I think if we start with that frame, how does sex now become a means, one means of nurturing intimacy in our marriage? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In- intimacy as a broader quality, right? There's a lots of things, you know, I think uh, there, we can nurture intimacy through, through recreational means, through intellectual means, as we have intellectually stimulating conversations together and 
um, spiritual means, right? We nurture intimacy and sex is one of these many means by which we nurture intimacy. And if we think about it through those frame or through, through kind of in that way, we can then ask ourselves, is sex just sex? Or are we actually nurturing a deeper quality of knowing and being known? Right. In a relationship, of seeing and being seen in our relationships. Is it nurturing or growing a deeper sense of um, confidence in self and confidence in other and trust and all those sorts of things where, you know, there was a, a study, uh, kind of a research survey that one prominent sex researcher, David Schnarch, he did, and about, you know, 50% of the people that responded, it was about, I think, like 60,000 respondents, um, about 50% said that, you know, their sexual relationship was basically just trading orgasms. That's not intimate, right? Mm. And so it's, so again, all this idea of, you know, that's kind of functional, right? Scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But, and, you know, back to this kind of question of utility, but if, if we're really nurturing intimacy, what does that look like? And so I think having conversations about being kind of show, I mean, it's, it's an opportunity to really practice um, showing up. There's a couple that I'm working with right now, and it's really important for him. He's like, He's like, you know, when he's like, you know, sometimes when I have sexual fantasies or there are things that I want to do, he's like, I don't want her to feel like she has to do everything that I would like, but I would like for her to be able to hear those things just so I feel known. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. And again, without requiring the other person to do anything that they feel uncomfortable with. There is, a, there is that quality of feeling seen and feeling known and practicing vulnerability. And, you know, we can really hold space for each other. And I think that's what's so powerful about, you know, in the potential of the sexual, you know, because it's, you know, symbolically, it's the most vulnerable that you can possibly be. And yet some people are still not very vulnerable, right? And so being emotionally vulnerable and spiritually vulnerable. And, and again, having, you know, nurturing it as an opportunity to really see as we were seen and know as we we're known. Going back to what you said earlier about how we can't be spiritually mature without being sexually mature. As you speak to this, I hope listeners are starting to recognize how learning to nurture the sexual relationship really does push you to live on a higher spiritual plane in your marriage because it does require a lot more effort a lot more character than your earthy, lustful sexual relationship that we see in the movies. If we approach it with, with reverence and intention, the sexual relationship in marriage elevates you both. It draws you closer to Christ because it takes real effort, just like improving any other aspect of your life. Right? Like there are laws that govern a healthy emotional life. You have to understand emotions. You have to know, understand what each of your emotions are saying. Uh, if we're going to eat well, we have to we have to have a, a more sophisticated relationship with our bodies, and you know, be kind of more mindfully attuned. And so, there's lots of things we have to do to eat well and to express our emotions healthily, and you know, our thoughts and beliefs. You know, you have cognitive behavioral therapy that's helping people recognize their distortions, and so they can be more clear in their thoughts. The sexual relationship, I think to, to really be healthy sexually, we need to have a similar kind of level of sophistication. I was having, I had a client who, he has a lot of anxieties about marriage. 
So I, I had him read Esther Perel's book, Mating in Captivity. And because he just, it, it's, it's un, I mean, he's unlearning all of the porn stuff, right? Mm. And, and in this book, you know, she, I, I really love so much of her work. And she was talking about, you know, you know, the subtitle to her book is Unlocking Erotic Intelligence, that, you know, if you're going to keep sexuality and eroticism alive in a long-term monogamous relationship, you have to understand the laws that govern it. And <laughs> without an understanding of those laws and in, in a way and uh, with, so that you can have the ability to, to nurture it in a way that doesn't, again, undermine attachment and all these other kind of important goods. Again, you just have to know, and most people, you know, we don't even like the, we don't even like the word eroticism, right? Like, we, you know, um, it makes us uncomfortable. It feels kind of mm -hmm. dirty for to a mm -hmm. lot of Latter-day Saints, right? But eroticism and this, this kind of passion, right? The, the, book, the, book, the Book of Mormon talks about uh, bridling our passions, not eradicating them, right? Right, right. We have to understand what, 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 what are the laws that kind of govern passion and to be able to work with those laws. And, and he, at the end of this, after he finished the book, he's like, I just didn't know that like sex would take work. Right? <laughs> he just, well, and I know, think so he, many people would say that too. <laughs> I would understand. Right, because I mean, when your whole sex education for the last, you know, 10, 15 years has been pornography, it doesn't take work, mm -hmm. right? But it's like, mm -hmm. it's just this constant stream of novelty and all it just happens right and it's spontaneous spontaneous and you don't need to work at that because i mean the next time you just got a new partner right i mean right. it's just right there's I no mean, relationship so it, there's no relationship and so it just it perpetuates so many bad ideas uh pornography about what sex can and should be in a long-term committed monogamous relationship for whom you're not with whom you're not going to have a constant stream of novelty, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't mean that there, there can't be some infusion of novelty, but again, it's not going to be this constant stream of novelty. And so, but he's just like, I just didn't even know that like, oh, like I guess it's hmm. something to work at. And it was, I mean, here's a 30 year old male who's, he's still single, but I just still just had no idea. This was a, this was kind of mind blowing and a little bit discouraging, right? <laughs> like, I just, <laughs> because of the expectations that popular media and pornography have, um, have kind of conditioned him to believe. So there, there's sort of this sense on it. So I think a lot of couples, there's, a, first of all, there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen, but that doesn't, you can't just unlearn something without putting something else in its place. Yeah. And so to be able to have access to really good books and literature. And I think Laura's books are great. And I think Jennifer Finlayson Five, her stuff is really great. And there's, a, there's just a growing, there's a lot of good Christian stuff. So there's a lot of really good thinkers that are, are one, very frank uh, and honest in what they're saying, but that it's also, which I think a lot of people struggle with, right? It's like, I don't need you to reteach me the plan of salvation to talk about sex. Mm -hmm. Can we just talk about sex? Mm -hmm. You know, and so because we're kind of anxious, like if I talk about it, then maybe you might do something wrong. So I need to make sure you understand the plan of salvation. And and I think sometimes that can feel a little patronizing to people. So it's like we but we want to have stuff that's congruent with our values, um, but that doesn't sort of patronize us in the way that it's presented. So 
And I think there's a growing body of resources uh, to that end. And so I think for couples to just be able to continue reading and learning, you know, my, my wife and I, we've been married for, um, you know, coming up on 12 years and we're still pretty regularly reading, you know, marriage books and parenting books. And, you know, cause I think when we're conscious and intentional, especially in the context of parenting, I think when we get unconscious and we default, she defaults to the way her mom parented and I default mm. to the way my mom no. parented and her mom is kind of shaming and my mom is kind of dismissive. And so she kind of defaults to shaming and I default to dismissive. But when we're, but when we're really on, like when we're reading and we're staying conscious and staying intentional, we're great. It's when we get unconscious that we default. And so to translate that to marriage, how do we stay conscious and intentional about growing our marriage? How do you, and different aspects of our marriage that could be finances, that could be the sex lives, our sexual relationship. How do we stay conscious and intentional by continuing to read to read books together and to continue to continue to learn and explore and talk and discuss? All of those things are really important to a relationship that's going to continue growing and that's going to continue to be life-giving and generative and it's going to challenge us, but that not just something we kind of passively ride and hope that it just works because that's what happens when it's right. It just yeah. works. Yeah. Have to work at it. That story of the 30-year-old young man who's still single and having this, this aha <laughs> moment of this takes work. And as you said, uh-huh. that feels discouraging, at least on the offset. And I really think that even if we start there with a recognition that just like every other part of our relationship, a healthy sex life in our marriage will require work, just like understanding finances and, and how to work through those issues because those can be really challenging in a marriage um, in communication. We're not just going to expect to be very good at these things and that nurturing any aspect of our marriage will require study, will require intention. And hopefully we are going to the source to our heavenly father and asking for, for insight and revelation on how to really improve upon these things in our relationship. And I think that was for me in the last year as I've been doing some study and and trying to make some improvements in this arena in my marriage, I've just recognized I have neglected it in so many ways, because once again, the world told me that this shouldn't take any effort. If I married the right person, this should just all come so naturally. And again, I believe that that is, that's Satan's, one of his greatest lies about just marriage in general. If this is right, then it won't require much effort. And I think hopefully, as we've been talking, we've pretty well debunked (laughs) that myth for our listeners. Well, the nice thing with the same client, even though it was initially kind of like um, a little disorienting, at the same time, this is something that can be worked at. This is something you can grow. This is something that you can create and nurture also took some of the vulnerability out because there's it's he doesn't have to just hope it happens there are things that he can do as an active agent to create the 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 relationship that he wants does that make sense yeah i mean obviously you're co-creating with somebody else but so it takes two to tango so to speak but 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 that was um but i think that becomes really important there was a couple that i was working with who she made a really interesting comment and they had been married uh, maybe close to 10 years but she made the comment that um, 
she said about it wasn't for the you know for the first few years of their relationship she really struggled with the sexual relationship because it was all about him mm. and uh and i think sometimes we have this maybe subtle narratives in the culture maybe sometimes not so subtle that sexuality is more about him and men are men are socialized to desire and women to be desirable right and so and we think of maybe there's some maybe some subtle narratives around sexuality is a male thing and that that women are there to accommodate mm -hmm. and and that's kind of where she was for the fir first eight years of her marriage and she said that once i decided that my pleasure and my experience was just as important as his it got way better mm -hmm. because she decided to show up differently to to talk about it to ask for things i mean they were just she was willing and he was happy you know, to have her there he just i mean i think for even in, in his mind he just didn't really even know that she wasn't you know she, you know so i think for for both men and women to really show up and to be willing to be an uh, an active and assertive and collaborative you know partner in in all respects uh i think that's really how we get to an equal partnership where you know your feelings and needs and desires are as important as mine and my needs and feelings and desires are as important as yours. And then we work together to kind of collaboratively kind of look for the win-win, you know, whenever we, wherever we can. Yeah. And really, I think going back to the very beginning of this discussion, again, every part of the marriage relationship is meant to point us to God and to direct mm. us to him. And, mm -hmm. and to humble us enough <laughs> to to rely upon him and, and i think again sometimes that we don't like that marriage puts us kind of in that space where we are under a lot of pressure it's in those relationships especially in the marital relationship where i feel like we we bump against each other so much that the hope is is that our rough edges will be rubbed off <laughs> Um, and, and our sexual relationship is just one of those parts of the, the relationship where we have an opportunity to work together, to collaborate, to, to have charity for one another, and to, as you said, create space for one another in our weakness, in showing up and being fully vulnerable and transparent so that we can continue to grow together as husband and wife, which again, will, will bring us closer to our heavenly father and help us become more like him, which again is the whole intent behind this, <laughs> this marriage relationship and just life in general. I've loved this conversation. I've really, really been trying to keep up with you, Ty, but I haven't been doing an amazing job, <laughs> mm. but thank you so much for the incredible work that you're doing in this field and the, the experience and the education that you have had to go through in order to reach this level of understanding. I'm sure it's yeah. not been an easy road. <laughs> no, but it's no, it's but I I love, but it's been it's been the road that it needed to be. Like any journey along the road, you know, when you're kind of moving along, it's not, you know, we have experiences that we don't necessarily love or like or enjoy. And then some that we do, but in hindsight, all the things that the Lord has taught me over the last 20 years, like I wouldn't trade any of it. Um, mm. and and even though a lot of the a lot of what I understand are things that the Lord has been teaching me through my journey, the principles are broadly applicable. And so to be able to then kind of offer those things 
right? Um, and to gift, you know, at least have conversations with people who are open. I mean, I, I love talking about this stuff. Um, so I very much appreciate the opportunity to be with you. It's always a, a pleasure. I know that uh, I asked you this question in the last episode that you were on, but we always end with this question. So I'll go ahead and ask it. Um, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? You know, I don't even remember what I said last time. So this will just be my fresh take this time. <laughs> um, because I believe that that's where life is. And I believe that God is here. And um, while I believe that God is working throughout the world in a number of ways and with a number of different people and traditions, I believe that we have something really unique and beautiful in understanding the nature of godliness and godhood. And, um, and I want to be where God is and with, you know, kind of anchored also, I think, in the prophetic voice. That's something I've been sort of, it's been sort of sitting with me again and, and appreciating again more deeply. I really believe that God is speaking in and to us and in some ways through, you know, or in many ways, you know, through the leaders of the church. And so that prophetic voice is very important to me, not just to be in Christ, but also in this, in our community, right, in the church and in covenant and on the covenant path. And, uh, but because that's where I believe that the greatest opportunities for growth are. And, you know, as God is calling us into greater and greater holiness, uh, as we seek to become like him and how our covenants and uh, the church help that process. Well, thank you so much, Ty. Really appreciate your time, your testimony tonight. I've really enjoyed this time together. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist sr podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.